Hello, photo fans. We're back with Fort Worth Camera Radio. Another thrilling discussion with a very special guest, as always, because everybody coming in here is as special as can be in the photographic community of Fort Worth and beyond. Uh, small twist today, and I want to tell you a little story about growing up as a kid in the 80s and 90s. Um, I was fascinated with travel. I was the youngest of three boys and my parents were able to take my two older brothers on trips. I was too young to go along. So whenever I watched something on television about travel, adventure, and even characters, which kind of symbolize that, like James Bond and Indiana Jones, I was hooked. I was hooked. And there was a show called National Geographic Explorer and I couldn't get enough of that. And uh, for me, the guy hosting it was as close to being a, a real life Indiana Jones as I could see. And as such, uh, today our special guest is Boyd Matson. How are you, Boyd? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. And thanks for watching so many years. And thanks for still being able to remember when I was on television. I remember uh, quite well. And uh, I want to make sure I get in that. Uh, Boyd's going to be a part of our 2019 Fort Worth Photo Fest. That's May 4th. You can check out uh, the description of his event at fortworthphotofest.com. That's photo with an F, fest with an F. You can also get there at fortworthcamera.com. Uh, and even Eventbrite, the official uh, ticketing agent, I guess we could say, of the Fort Worth Photo Fest. But uh, his presentation is going to be entitled, The Adventure Begins When Things Go Wrong. Let's get to that in a moment. But I got to ask, you're a Texas guy. Uh, I grew up in Texas, grew up in West Texas, uh, out in Midland, where I spent the first 15 years of my life. And uh, so you had distant horizons that you could see forever. You could see into next week it was so flat in Midland. And then when I was about 15, I moved to Fort Worth, went to Pascal High School, then went down to uh, Cleburne. My parents bought a little farm that when they moved from Cleburne, we knew they were going to look for it. And uh, they found one, and I spent my final two years of high school at Cleburne, Texas, before coming back here, actually, to my first radio job and after I got out of college was at Quixie FM, which was KFG, KFJZ's FM station. Quixie? Quixie. KWXI, they call oh, it Quixie. Okay. K, I don't even know if it's still, I haven't listened to it. Maybe it's still on the air. But I may have put it out of business. You know? <laughs> no. But they were in the same building with Channel 11. What I really wanted to do was be a, a TV journalist, a broadcast journalist. And I would go down every day to the TV side of the building and bug them until they finally hired me. And I got started in television here. Now, what were you doing in television at the time of your entry-level position? <laughs> well, entry-level, this is so long ago, television still used this archaic uh, medium of film. So we shot 16 millimeter film and that meant somebody had to process it and they hired me. The processing tanks were right there in the building and I would process the film for the evening news and then splice it together. The news director would tear the film and hang it in the order he wanted to splice for the stories and essentially taught me editing by doing editing by doing that because he was saying, this is why I want this shot first and this second, and this is why I want this as my last. And the whole reason of how you tell a story by the way you edit the film. And that's how I learned it. And not everybody coming out of college wanted to be in television like they do now, it seems like. Right. And since there were, wasn't a lot of competition, I think within three months he had me anchoring the sign-off news they were doing on camera. <laughs> and within four months somebody quit and I was 
anchoring their Sunday evening 10 o'clock newscast. So it was a much faster rise than you should expect for someone with no experience. Now, of course, people that are aware of your reputation and, and, and viewing you on on television, did you always have your, your good TV and radio voice? <laughs> Because it's pretty good, and I wish I, I could have that. I have no way of, of evaluating it. What I know is I had a heavy Texas accent growing up in West Texas. So can you can you channel? Can back I in talk time? like that again? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, usually, when I would when I was living elsewhere, I went to L.A. to first work uh, for NBC, and when I was out there, I'd call home, and people could tell if I'd called home to my parents. They'd say, "You got your accent back," because <laughs> you just pick it up by listening to it. But, while in college, I had a girlfriend who was from California, and I started working at a local radio station while I was in college in Oklahoma. And she would, I made her, this is how dedicated she was, committed to the relationship at that moment. She would actually listen to the show, and then she, because of her California ear, and she was very musical, would tell me the sounds that were contributing to my heavy Texas accent, and, and then give me coaching on how to overcome that. <laughs> <laughs> so I could sound like I was from anywhere in America, but there's still that little flavor of Texas never goes away. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, okay. So back to the the uh, probably the most uh, fascinating portion of our, our visit that people want to hear about, National Geographic. You know, there's footage out there of you on, uh, I don't know what they're called, on a helicopter, but the... The landing gear of a helicopter cruising over a volcano. You are in <laughs> Africa. You're in Asia. You're in all parts of the world. So I think we touched on you. You were doing some news work. And how on earth, literally how on earth does someone actually prepare yourself for that type of broadcasting? Well, I think. What I wanted most of all was to be a journalist. I don't think. I know that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a journalist. I meant to say journalism. Pardon me. And I wanted to tell stories. And I, for me, growing up, this came to me very early that I wanted to be a journalist. And mainly because I was watching the news and didn't fully understand the concept of what that meant. But as a kid, and I don't know why I thought of this as early as I did, but in my middle school, I had come to this conclusion. It was because I was watching the evening news and I saw that the newsmen, particularly the anchors who you were following at that time, most people probably don't even remember Huntley Brinkley, but they were doing NBC and Walter Cronkite. And I was watching them and I think, they are where everything in the world that is interesting is happening. And I want to go where the interesting things are happening and yeah. learn about them. And I, I'm, I don't have the money to do it on my own. So how could I do that? Be a journalist and then I get to go and sort of be on the inside while it's there observing it and then telling other people about what the world is like. And that's when it began and why I wanted to do that, why I wanted to go into broadcast journalism. Did personal photography ever enter into any of these well, assignments? Like, I was always taking pictures. For some reason, my family had a lot of, when I was growing up, I was just looking at some old home movies because I put together a little birthday video for my brother and I realized my family was has movie film from before I was born I was born a long time ago so they all there were always cameras and still pictures and film and I started shooting a little film camera very early I got one as a present and I, I took slides back in those days 
And it was just part of my life. So when I started in television, the first job after processing film, I begged them to let me take a camera because I, I said, you either sort of have an eye for this or you don't. Uh, you can learn the mechanics of taking pictures. Anybody can learn that. But they said, all right, try it. And they gave me a camera, and I started shooting film for the TV station almost immediately. And while in Texas, I went to Channel 5 and was the sports director here. And as sports director, I shot almost all of my stories I had a cameraman to help me, but sometimes even the interviews, I would set up the camera and put the mic in front of the interviewee and then grab it. I remember once interviewing Ted Williams, who was the first manager of the Texas Rangers yeah. when they came to town because they had been a Washington senator's manager and they came here. And so Ted could be, uh, how will I put this uh, Independent-minded. Yeah. <laughs> he, he sort of did what he wanted to do when he wanted. So he has agreed to this interview, and I've set my camera up on the tripod, the film camera, the microphone in front of him. Then I run, turn it on, run around, grab the mic, pick it up, and start interviewing him. And when he thinks the interview is over, he starts walking away, and my interview finishes when I run out of cord that I can no longer follow him. <laughs> Yoink. <laughs> but it set me up to uh, knowing how to shoot film. And uh, also I knew how to edit it because I'd always, I did all of my own editing. And then when I went to NBC for a while, there were union rules and you weren't allowed to touch a camera oh, wow. if you were an on-air person. But eventually those rules changed and I began to shoot it. And while at National Geographic, I was still shooting video the whole time I was there. You know, I always fancied myself as a an adventure photographer, a travel photographer. And of course, I don't hold a candle to... A lot of my own personal friends who do the same thing, except on much better levels. How do you prepare yourself, not only as a, a, photo, a journalist, a photographer, because everything is just on the go. You have to, in most cases, arrive at your location and set up. How are you preparing yourself for either being a photographer or um, a presenter? I mean... Or, or should I say how much preparation goes into that? Well, let me clear up. When people hear that I worked for National Geographic for 22 years and I took pictures while I was there, they think of the great photographers in the magazine, and I don't put myself in that category, even though we're doing this Fort Worth Photo Fest. And I'll, I'll give some examples of, I'll even show some examples of things I've shot in Here video and some pictures I've taken when I give the talk. If you show up May 4th, you can see this. Hear some of the stories. Uh, but I knew the mechanics, but the basics. I was not, I don't even fully understand the, all the tricks that my still camera would do. I, in the beginning, I was mainly shooting video, but I was, uh, especially at National Geographic, like a secondary cameraman. We might have a main cameraman on the assignment, and then I was carrying smaller cameras. And my approach to photography is if it's an artistic setup and uh, am I getting odd effects by filters and things I'm putting on the camera, that's really not where I'm going to be best. I am trying to tell a story. So I'm looking at what images will help me tell the story. And the key is being in places where interesting things are happening. That's how you get interesting pictures. Uh Great photographers can make it look a little better, but if you are really in an interesting location and you've got the basic settings down right on your camera, and most people can just pull out their iPhone. If they're in the right place, they're going to get a great shot. So being a journalist, it took me to interesting places, and I was 
I had access that most people don't get in being with National Geographic. It gave me additional access even to, say, the average person goes on safari to Africa. They're in a vehicle. They're right beside the lions. But by being at National Geographic and knowing people who lived in the field, sometimes I would get out of the vehicle. Don't ever do that as a tourist. You get eaten. <laughs> so I'll even show some video of what happens sometimes when you get out of the vehicle. And that's what I mean, the real adventure. You can, as long as it's planned and it's going according to script, it's not a true adventure. It's too planned. The adventure, that's what I mean by when I say in my talk, the adventure begins when things go wrong. That's when now you have to go on instinct, what's happening at the moment. Can you get a picture while you're being charged by a rhino? Or do you drop the camera and run? Those um, questions come B. up. Yeah, so no? I, I may uh, I may even explain. So I'll show you some examples of getting charged by wild animals if you show up on May 4th and, and how you should react or, or maybe how I didn't react as I always should, but we managed to get a photo out of it or a video out of it. Well, again, we're sitting with Boyd Madsen, uh, Fort Worth resident, which was... Uh, one of the best parts about this, you just came And I'm back, store. by the way. I'm now a Fort Worth resident. This is now our primary residency, again, right. now that I've retired from National Geographic, even though we still live part-time in Washington, D.C., where National Geographic is headquartered. But this is our main abode now. It's a swinging town. We'll get to that <laughs> later. Um, so speaking of sc- <laughs> when things go wrong, when did things go wrong? Can you give me an example or two? Uh, sure, and if you want to see video of it, again, am I overplugging this? <laughs> no, this to, is great. We don't even have to. This is nice, Greg. Four, <laughs> four o'clock, right? That's we're four o'clock, May fourth. Yep, yep, yeah. that's right. Four four. You ought to be able to remember that. Five. Yeah, four, we'll, four. we'll need you there, by the way, just so. And uh, uh, so, one of them happens on the very first trip I ever take with National Geographic, which I think sets the tone nice. for what my life is going to be like and what my at National Geographic and what to expect. As I sometimes like to say, National Geographic never showed any hesitancy to put my life at risk. If, <laughs> as long as I didn't get hurt so badly, I couldn't come back and do the show the next week. Uh, so you'll see me wading into a hippo pond with hippos that suddenly, one hippo in particular, that suddenly didn't want me to be there. Uh, you'll see when I was working, I think I'm going to show this video. You know, I haven't totally worked out everything I'm going to show, okay. but we I got, have video of this. We got time. Of when I'm with a, uh, uh, working with a lion that were, this is a lion that had been taken to a rescue facility because, by the way, I just put this little promo out there. If you think it would be cool to have a big cat, and by that I mean a lion or a tiger or a leopard, as a pet, don't. Yeah. As they're small, they're cute, they are kittens, but they are predators. Even your house cat's a predator. Let it out in the yard and it'll come back with a dead mouse or a dead bird before long. They're out there killing wildlife as fast as they can. It's what they are. Uh, and when they get big, they're uncontrollable and they don't deserve to be in small cages in somebody's backyard. So don't do that. But sometimes people do. And often those cats then have to be rescued or taken away from the person because of the miserable conditions the cat's living in. And we were at a facility that rescued those, and we were using some of those to tell a story for National Geographic. And so that's all planned out, and you think you know what's going to happen. This animal being in a rescue facility is used to being around people, not strangers. But then you see what happens that, you know, 
still a wild animal. They're as unpredictable as teenagers with alcohol. That's about it. You have Ooh. no idea what they're going to do. So the lion I, decides that I, thought I, I was might scared make about a, the hippo, but now that thought is even worse. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So you will see what happens when the lion suddenly decides to tell me to back off. Uh, what else has gone wrong? Uh, well, I've, uh, and this didn't go wrong for me, but it went wrong. And I did, so I don't know if I will have footage. It's probably not in my story, so I'll tell you about it now. Uh, I went to Everest where everything can go wrong yep. without warning, no matter how good you are. And I was there to do a story. We called it Fatal Attraction. What is the appeal of this mountain where people get in trouble and die every year, even experienced climbers? And we went on the fifth anniversary of the tragedy of 96. So this is 2001. We went back to do a story on the fifth anniversary when eight people were killed in a single day, including the Dallas pathologist, Dr. Beck Weathers. And, uh, and I went around and interviewed the survivors of that. He was not one of those killed, but he was there, part of the story. He was lucky to survive despite losing fingers, his nose, toes, and uh, went to interview him about his experience and other survivors of that tragedy. And then we went to Everest and went through the Kumbu Icefall, which is considered, they say the two most dangerous days on Everest are the first day and the last day. And by the first day, they're talking about when you go through the Kumbu Icefall, the last day being Summit Day. And the Kumbu Icefall is essentially 2,000 vertical feet through glacier. And they call it an icefall because the ice is falling down the mountain, but it's a glacier. And uh, it changes. There are crevasses. You see people on ladders walking across these open spaces in the ice. And there are multiple ladders through the icefall. And you, if you're really climbing Everest, you go up through that. Camp one, you acclimatize, you come back down to base camp. You may go through eight times on a summit, just going up higher, acclimatizing, coming down, resting, going back up. So we were going through to show the real risk on the icefall. And it was challenging. Fortunately, I survived that part with nothing happening to me. We didn't have any... We didn't have any tragedies there, but we look and we see avalanches acting ta taking place in other parts of the icefall. And I turn and start filming as an avalanche goes off on the side of the icefall. But the best known Sherpa in the world at that time, Babachiri, outside of Tenzing Norgay, who summited right. Hillary, the first Sherpa. But Babachiri at that point had summited 10 times on Everest. He had slept on the summit, the only person to do so. He had the speed record from base camp to the summit, 16 hours and 59 minutes. And for the first time, a Sherpa was leading his own team. He was not just working on it. He owned the team and had clients. And I talked to him in base camp about the risk involved and why he was doing it and how he knew it was risky, but he was trying to build up enough name and reputation to have a business going and money coming in so he could build schools for Sherpa children living in uh, Nepal. And we have tea that night. The next day I go up through the icefall and come back down. And the day after that, and Babu Cherry goes up through the icefall that same day. The next day we were packing up to leave because we had finished our shooting. And my Sherpa comes to me and says, Babu's gone. And I thought, what? well, we're going too. We're going back down. We thought he was going down to race. He said, no. He fell into a crevasse at Camp One and was killed. So this is the unexpected. And when 
you realize a lot of this is out of your control. Here he is the, considered the best Sherpa in the world at that point, active climber. And uh, something happened. He stepped into a crevasse at Camp 1 and was killed. And nobody knows exactly why, what happened, what went wrong, because nobody saw it when it happened. So we stay and watch as they carry the body down the mountain. And then the next day, they helicopter him out to Kathmandu. And being Buddhist, he is uh, cremated and, and the funeral is held that day as soon as they get him down to Kathmandu. So you, things that go wrong can have a happy ending or they can have a tragic ending. And you have to be prepared to deal with that uh, while you're out on an adventure. But that's all part of it. That's all part of the adventure. Yes, and that's sort of the hard part as a journalist and not being, because I am not the best climber, I'm not the best uh, swimmer or hiker or whatever. I'm adequate, <laughs> but I'm not the best at any of this. I am sort of the representative of the everyman, what it would be like for them to go. Or I'm that as I'm trying to tell the story. This is kind of participatory journalism, and that's what I was doing. Uh, and what is hard is to make sure that you keep focused on the reality of the risk and not so. And we did that at Everest because you can get so lost in the moment that you say, well, I could go a little higher. I'm feeling okay. And then you have to realize, wait, 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 what are my capabilities? <laughs> I need to stop here. Or this being on an active volcano and you're walking near the edge where the lava is flowing along and you think, well, it'd be a better shot if I got over here. And then you have wait, am I... It's important that you try to keep some perspective. And obviously, when a camera's there and you're thinking of the shot and you're thinking of the story, you sometimes and frequently get too close, but hopefully not over the edge. You get too close to danger, or you get close to danger. I don't, it's not too close until something bad goes wrong, I guess. So now, maybe besides National Geographic Explorer, <clears throat> pardon me, were there any other times where you are at? actually able to influence your artistic skill into a production? Well, before I went to National Geographic, I spent most of my career at NBC. And a, there was a big chunk that was working for the Today Show in which I had freedom to just go around the country and do any kind of story I wanted to. Wow. And in that, I was... I wanted to, to tell stories, but I wanted to try to create one with a look that had a style to it. And I thought that would help draw in viewers because the goal of telling a story is to get people to listen to it. You want them to hear it. And how can you add to the attraction of the story? And I thought, we're doing television. Let's make something visually interesting for them to watch as well. And so we created a series that I called Flying the Coop. And it was because... I was driving a red 63 Cadillac Coupe de Ville convertible around the country and telling the stories from that and using that as the Cadillac as a device to get us to the people, but then putting the people in the car and doing the interviews in the car to give it this effect you'd want to watch. And if the people weren't in the car, the car would be in the background. So there was this beautiful red Cadillac convertible and that added a, a style to the story. And I remember it also helped us when we interviewed Hunter S. Thompson, who was this guy known as a gonzo journalist of the day and, gonzo. and wrote a lot for Rolling Stone magazine and was uh, really out there in his style. And he, in one of his books of fear and loathing in Las Vegas, a central point of it, or how he got to Las Vegas, he got in a white Cadillac convertible and drove from LA to Las Vegas. And that was part of the story. So when we called him up and said, we've got a red Cadillac convertible and you'll, 
we want to interview you driving you around in the Cadillac. And so he agreed. And it made this strange experience and story. This is the adventure began when things go wrong, I'll tell you. Because Hunter liked fireworks and he liked shooting weapons and automatic weapons and uh, a lot of that happened. And a lot of clean living. And a lot of clean living. I'm not going to go into detail on uh, just how crazy this got other than uh, say that there was some alcohol involved and Hunter insisted on driving and don't call me with the complaints about we were out in the country and out of Woody Creek, Colorado in a, a road and we had it safely cordoned off from anything bad happening. But he oh. was driving along and firing his gun out the window of the car at the roadside. And I don't want to make it look, you have to see the story and actually you can go onto my Boyd Matson's YouTube page and you can actually see the Hunter Thompson story and get the real feel for how crazy it was. But also under, you can see how we use the car to give a visual uh, weight to the story as well as just what he was saying. Uh, Mr. Masson, I wanted to thank you for joining us. It's really, really a pleasure having you here. I'm sorry. I was looking around. I thought my dad was here when you said Mr. Matson. Boyd, <laughs> we're, we're good friends now. Thank yes. you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. It's all, you know, I love Fort Worth and I'm thrilled that I can be part of something happening in the community on uh, May 4th to give the little talk. So come out and we'll show you some of the adventures we've talked about here on this. And you're good at the program. plug. We need to have you back more often. Um, so you love Fort Worth, and as such, does Fort Worth ever cross your mind? <laughs> How could it not if you've lived here, especially during your your youth and your early years out of college where you could really drink in the city life? So yeah, I thought a lot about it. I thought, I was here when the stockyards really got started after they were the stockyards and became a tourist attraction oh. when they were first putting in the clubs and people like George Strait himself were performing down at the stockyards wow. and, uh, uh, and when Billy Bob started. So all of that, it brings back good memories. You tend to remember, if you enjoyed growing up, you always remember that fondly. And so I always remember Fort Worth fondly. And now I live here again and participating in it. And it's great reconnecting with old friends and picking up where we left off. Thank you, Boyd. My pleasure. This has been a presentation of Fort Worth Camera at 1600 Montgomery Street in the Cultural District of Fort Worth, Texas. I'm Mackenzie Hughes. Our engineer is Greg Woods. For more information about Fort Worth Camera, visit fortworthcamera.com. And for more information on the Fort Worth Photo Fest, please visit fortworthphotofest.com.